Welcome to Tramlines, a podcast from Agri. I'm your host, Tony Smith, putting your questions to the experts. In this episode, we're talking with Marek Nowakowski, wildlife and environment expert. We are visiting one of Marek's favourite wildlife sites in the stunning Oxfordshire countryside. SFI, stewardship and the environment are important topics of conversation. Today, we're going to look specifically at wildlife habitat and the important benefits for both wildlife and farm productivity, asking, how much habitat do I need? So good afternoon, Marek. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And it's an absolute delight to invite you back here on Tramlines to set us off on season three. So, Marek, the big question is, before we get to the detail of how much habitat do we need is, well, what's in it for farmers? Why should we be paying this careful attention? I think it's very exciting. The times we lead now, or the times we're involved in now, do involve change. A lot of research has been done on which habitat, where, how much and everything else. And I think what we've got to move more towards is quality of delivery. You can take your whole farm out, but if you do the wrong thing in the wrong place, the delivery, A, for the money you've been given, and B, the environmental gains can be minuscule. So what we're really looking at is putting the right habitat in, in the right place, which gets back to this question that not enough farmers are addressing is how much is the right amount? Everybody knows it's £600 a hectare, we'll have some of that. There's one there for £50 a hectare, we don't like the sound of that. Um, but having worked with the ologists for many, many years, the bit that I want to try and focus on today with you is making it count. I want you to farm, I want you to grow food, I want you to feed us, but I want three or five percent of your farm and we'll work out the best places to put that three or five percent so that we get habitat diversity and it sounds a complicated word but we get the right spatial distribution. Well, that makes perfect sense Mary. So therefore how much habitat do we need on a farm? There are three things that make the whole thing, if you like, gel. Um, home, food and mate. Um, home very much depends on what you're trying to deliver. Um, if you are looking to deliver pollinators, um, then that would be something different to uh, nesting bees. So ho home is fairly variable, but I think home would cover hedges, tussocky grass, a bit of bare ground for the solitary bees, and if you're lucky enough to have a bit of a wet area, ponds and, uh, and wet grassland. Then we go into hedges, um, often overlooked, but hedges can be the remnants of woodland. The Enclosure Act um, put a backbone in, in the countryside in the sense that hedges can be used as corridors, ideal for birds, vertebrates, invertebrates, um, and they can act as corridors, uh, which a lot of people talk about. The other habitat is tussocky grass. This is a home for small, small mammals. Many of the bumblebees nest in last year's uh, small mammal holes. Um, again, invertebrates such as spiders and beetles. Um, as I say, tusky grass is often overlooked. It's cheap, it's easy, it's perhaps less demanding than many of the others. One that is becoming more apparent is the need for a certain amount of bare ground. Bare ground is used by the mining bees, the ones that drill holes in bare ground or, or, or tightly cut lawns. You get like these mini volcanoes. These bees, without going into the life cycle of bees, these bees are perhaps the best pollinators. 
the solitary bees move dry pollen as opposed to bumbles and honeys that move moistened pollen. So if you're looking for pollination, then it's got to be the solitary bees because they're far more effective. So, so Marek, thinking about the different uh, insects and other species you're wanting to attract into these wildlife habitats, can you give us some examples of species that we should be thinking about that are going to be particularly uh, helpful and valuable? Yes. Um, the bit we've got to think about first is what we call the hungry gap. The hungry gap is March to May. Most of the flowers we buy and tip out of a bag, i.e. in stewardship, etc., are very valuable, but they don't kick in till late May, early June. So if I'm a beneficial insect and I've come out in March, what am I reliant on? I'm reliant on mainly two sources. One is flowering trees and shrubs that everybody underestimates, and they're worth their weight in gold because they fill that hungry gap. So that, that, that's hedgerows. The other thing is things like red and white dead nettle, green alkanet, um, flowers that nature provides that no seedsman ever collects seed from for a variety of reasons. Try as I might, um, many of the seeds that come from the early wildflowers um, aren't commercially available. The exception might be dandelion. Um, am I suggesting farmers sow dandelion? Afraid so. It's one of the flowers that, that punches well above its weight. Then we move into mid-season, June, July, August. Um, these are when the sown mixtures deliver. What we're looking for there is a range of plants, different colours, different shapes. Uh, what do I mean by different shapes? If you looked, for example, at a white dead nettle that has this sort of bell-shaped flower, and you looked at an oxide daisy that has a yellow pad surrounded by flowers, you've got two very different shapes of flower. The good quality mixtures have to look at flowering period and flowering shape. Otherwise, all the long-tongued insects um, would go for red clover, and the short-tongued insects can't get into red clover because their tongues aren't long enough, so there needs to be something that suits them um, the bit that I think is, is, is going to push the boundaries um, in a new direction, as we see a decline in insecticides and insecticide use, what can we do about that? I've worked very hard with um, some of my ologist colleagues to identify the plants that encourage what I would call the beneficial insects. And this seems to be many of the umbellifers. Um, yes, we've got wild carrot in, in most of the mixtures, but the idea, and we've done the science on this, the idea of introducing things like cow parsley and some of the hogweeds, um, it's perhaps a step too far. But if we're really going to get the environment working with farming, and we're going to see a decline, particularly insecticides, but I think with pesticides in general, providing the thing is properly balanced, we can use some of these habitats to aid and support many of the directions that crop production has to go into. And so where, where do we need to establish these specific areas for wildlife? Yeah, so, so um, the petrol stations, w w which I think um, and <laughs> petrol stations now have to have electric plug-in points, um, but the idea is that the, the electric car must be able to get to the next charging point. And, and I see a, a, a very similar situation with insects. Um, we know 
um, and a lot of research has been done, uh, that some of which I've been involved in, we now know, beyond any reasonable doubt, the distance, and we're talking about from home to petrol station, not looking for homes, but we're looking at a much tighter distance, which is from home to petrol station. We know that even the smallest of insects can fly 300 metres. So that gives us one habitat in every 30 hectares, crudely. It's a starting point. Um, you can't just pick a number with your eyes closed and hope for the best because that's where things start to go wrong. If we're looking at um, many of the other beneficial insects, um, some work has recently shown us that putting in-field flower strips that attract crop uh, predators of the enemies of crops, the beneficial insects that go out and munch their way through crop pests. We need these strips about six metres wide, roughly every hundred metres, depending on whether you've got a 24 metre or a 30 metre sprayer, but it's somewhere between 96 and about 102 metres apart. So we've now invited the the goodies into the field rather than around the edge of the field. We're looking at much bigger fields than we used to. So if you have habitat around the edge, the ability for the goodies to get into a field is somewhat limited because they're, they're not great travellers. Yes, birds obviously fly much greater distances, but many of the caribid beetles and things like that, they're not, they're not going to walk from here to France or from here to Scotland. So we need... Uh, and I've been fascinated by the research because I love bringing farmers hooks. I love bringing farmers answers so that it increases their understanding. It gives them targets. And most of all, it, it gives them a higher level of success. So we know that the small insects can do 300 metres. We know that carabid beetles, um, we certainly know that many of them and the rove beetles will do 50 metres either side um, of an in-field margin, so that puts the margins 500 metres apart. Going back to the birds that we talked about a few minutes ago, we know that we can be fairly flexible there. All I would say is don't have too small an area, they don't last long enough. So pick a figure, Marek, one hectare or more, it's got to fit into stewardship, and have those in areas that I think are geographically shaped. What I mean by that is a, a nice rectangle, because you might be applying a bit of fertiliser, you might be applying a selective graminicide or something else, because we need to farm all these areas. When it comes to the wildflower patches, they can be a bit higgledy-piggledy in shape, because what you're going to be doing mostly is mowing, so it's not a risk of over-fertilising or anything else. So when you start to piece all this jigsaw together, on a large farm map, it all starts to make sense. And what happens then is, having done this for years with farmers, they start to give you buy-in, they start to race ahead of you. So they're straight away committed. And, and at the risk of sounding too critical, years ago, it was how much can I earn? And there wasn't much talk about how much do you think I could deliver? So what is the next step on farm? So we've plotted out what we're going to do and where. We've looked at spatial distribution. We've looked at the cash flow um, so that the farmer knows what he's committing himself to and what he will get back in the way of a payment. Now we've actually got, like farming always is, we've got a planned approach. We've moved away from the early days, which is I'll go down the options and I'll find the most expensive and I'll have all of those. And maybe you don't need them all. And I think if this is going to work, if there's going to be a partnership, effective partnership between the farmers, agronomists and environmentalists and DEFRA's funding, we have to get results.
in the past, um, I think habitat delivery was measured not by success, but by area. Well, many years ago, uh, we called that set aside and it was an area payment. But for the farmer to be engaged, enthused and understand, we've got to get success. And the most, or one of the most important things in success is actually getting this distance right. And I suppose the, the I think very much the new message, the message today, um, starting 2023's podcast is, we actually know how far apart the pollen and nectar needs to be so nothing can't reach a petrol station, which is a huge step forward. And Marek, I, I can really hear your genuine passion when you're talking about creating these viable habitats on our farms for bees and pollinators and beneficials. If we can bring wildlife into a situation where it works more closely with food production, it has to be a win-win. The farmers are going to lose the basic payment scheme on a declining scale, I think, till 2027, then it disappears. There has to be an opportunity by which they can claw back some of that money, which in many farms was actually the difference between profit and loss. So what I would ask farmers to do is, you ain't going to get away from this. You've got to embrace the change. You've got to look at this as a lesser income stream, but an income stream nonetheless. And I think the sooner we step up to the plate, engage with this and deliver, um, the better I think the whole thing will be. And until we can get both sides of the equation balanced better, um, it's always going to be the haves and the haves not, the pushes and the pulls. Um, I'm lucky working with a lot of environmental scientists and having been an agronomist, I firmly believe we can actually have our cake and eat it. And the next five or six years, um, I think, uh, uh, if you like, the big learning curve, the big test period. So where, where can we find out more? Uh, how do we learn more about establishing these habitats? Training, training, training. I don't know how many times to say training. Um, it's something that Agri do quite a lot of. But if the farmer's being asked to deliver things, um, a crop of all seed rape, somebody teaches him to grow it. A winter wheat crop, he's not born knowing it, somebody teaches him. So wildlife delivery, the training of that is absolutely critical. It sounds as if there is a lot to think about in order to get this working as best it can do on a farm. But, you know, what are the, what are the key principles we really do need to follow here, Marek? It's worth reminding people that I think that the concept that I want to push very hard today is this idea of how far can an insect fly. If we're looking at beneficial insects, if we're looking at IPM, whatever that means... Um, we need to make sure that even the smallest of insects can get to a pollen and nectar mix, can get to a fuel station. We know that they can fly from home to petrol station 300 metres. 300 metre radius is about 30 hectares. So divide 30 into the size of your farm. I've got a 200 hectare farm. So I'm looking for between six and seven pollen and nectar habitats linked to the flowers in the hedges, linked to some of the flowers in the bird food mixtures, for example, fodder radish, very good for pollinating insects, very good as seed in the winter for birds. So we're looking at a whole education process that certainly agri um, are pioneering and pushing hard on, and more and more people are beginning to give farmers the support and the training they need 
to do a job that, that, that is of a much higher standard than it used to be in the, in the past. If we can get this right, the farm gross margin and the wildlife gross margin both go up together. Can you just reiterate that for us? Because that, that is the so what for our listeners today and for, for farmers and growers. Yeah, it's got to be a planned approach. We've got to look at the distances the beetle, the bumblebee, the bird can travel. And, and again, it's not travel looking for a home. It's when I've got my home, I don't want to go too far away. Oh, I don't want to have to travel too far to get to a food source. But he wants to forage within about a 300 metre radius. 300 metre radius would be about a 30 hectare area. Some of that will be in the hedge at certain times of year, which is ideal for filling this hungry gap. Other times it'll be midsummer. So we've got to have these habitats. The, the theologist's word is spatial distribution. Um, and I think this is a very new concept and something I hope this podcast encourages people to consider. What have I got? Where is it? Now what do I need to add and where do I put it? So that everything, people, people loosely talk about corridors and I suppose that's what we're talking about now. Um, I have seen situations where uh, people will say, oh, I've done my bit for biodiversity. I've sown a 10-acre flower meadow um, on his 400-acre farm and it's in one corner of the farm. Well, if it's in the north corner, whatever lives in the south corner and wants pollen and nectar is never going to get to the fuel station. I mean, that's a crude example. But if we're going to do this in a way that's good for biodiversity and good for the farm, we've got to make sure that the distances, i.e. spatial distribution, are as good and as effective as they can be. And then I think what happens is we get a win-win. Taking the lower yielding land out of production um, enables the farmer to look up at an income, in, an income stream. Some of these habitats are, are going to give you £600 a hectare. Yes, go for a good quality wildflower mix. I suppose my speciality is the wildflower mixtures. Um, there's a big difference between the agricultural cultivars and the native cultivars. Most of the agricultural cultivars are bred for yield, um, not longevity. Most of the wild ones are much longer lived. Much of the, the wild flowers, the wild flowers, live for longer than, than the agricultural cultivars. So it's pulling all these things together in a planned approach, getting advice, going on training courses that allow you, as I said, to maximise on, on biodiversity gain and gross margin gain on the farm. And to bring this podcast to a close, Marek, it sounds such a compelling argument to create more wildlife habitats on our farms. It's within our reach now to look at, if you like, the perfect marriage. If you get this wildlife and farming right, and that's what we've been talking about, the farm gross margin goes up, as does the wildlife gross margin. Now, as they say, we're cooking on gas. Thank you, Marek, as always, for sharing your expert advice, answering the big question, how much habitat do we need? That's it for this podcast, but do tune in again as we meet the experts throughout the season, exploring the many immediate and longer-term questions for growers and farmers in the UK. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask the experts, email info at agri.co.uk. See you next time.